Mark chapter 11, I will be reading verses 1 through 11. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Thanks be to God for his holy word. May he bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. We have now come to the last seven days of Jesus' humiliation and earthly ministry before his death and resurrection. Uh, This is what is often called the beginning of Passion Week, which took place during Passover. And these last seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry takes up one-third of the Gospel of St. Mark, as we will see. But also it takes up about a quarter of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and half of John's Gospel. That is, seven days out of three years of Jesus' ministry takes up such a large portion of of the Gospels. Uh, So we must conclude that the last seven days are important, if not vital to understanding the Gospel, and it is central and vital to the Christian faith. It shouldn't be minimized in light of everything else Jesus has done. Rather, it should be emphasized because the Gospel writers emphasize it by giving such a large portion of the narrative to it. His work was only partly accomplished, and now Jesus has set his sights on completing his work. Now he, his disciples, and possibly a large crowd of followers and pilgrims were drawing near to Jerusalem as they made their way westward through Bethphage and Bethany, which was east of Jerusalem. And they were pretty high up, about 300 feet above Jerusalem, which was already 2,500 feet above sea level at the Mount of Olives. Remember that. This will be important later on. And they were making their way down to the eastern gates of Jerusalem. And what we will see here is a humble yet royal procession, a crowd's misguided praise, and the return of God's glory to the temple. First, notice his humble entrance. 
As they came to the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples into the village in front of them, and he told them the exact location where they will find a colt tied as they immediately enter the village. And they were to untie it and bring it back to him. Now the question is, how did he know that there would be a colt there in that exact location? Well, not only because he knows all things, and he knew exactly what was going to happen in the coming week, he foretold these events three times to his disciples before, but I believe it was also a well-planned event. It seems like he knew the owner of the colt, because he tells them to say to whoever asks them, why are you doing this? He gives them a, a sort of password. He says, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. They gave the password. And they let them go. See, that is not normal. Right? This is why it had to be planned out. Anyone can get into your vehicle, hotwire the car, and as you confront them, tell you, the Lord has need of it. But that wouldn't fly, would it? Also notice how Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. He doesn't mean simply as sir or master. He's speaking of the Lord of the universe. And this is tied to the sending for the cult. Now the significance of the cult is much more than what we would think when we first read the passage. This calling for the cult reveals who he is. Why is that? Well, the cult is a young donkey which no one has ever sat on. There is so much symbolism in this text even when it comes to the cult. Uh, Because just like in the Old Testament, whenever an animal such as a colt was used for kingly or priestly service, it was to be unused or unbroken, much like the temple sacrifices were to be unblemished. So this colt was set apart for God's use, and it was to be unblemished by secular or common use. Uh, This was to symbolize... Jesus' own humble offering of himself as a sacrifice as he will ride in on a donkey that has never been ridden on before. Now, if he is riding into Jerusalem on a colt, he would not be riding at the same pace and with the same glamour and showboating of a Roman army riding in on horses after claiming military victory. He didn't come with chariots, nor soldiers, just a donkey and a ragtag band of disciples. The first readers of this gospel would have picked up on this because they were Romans, and they were used to seeing the pomp and worldly glory of the Roman army. Even the donkey that he rides in on is borrowed, and he promised to return it. It wasn't even his. So this was a clear display of Christ's humility and lowliness. It was to show that His kingdom was not of this world. His entrance was not what the world would expect from a victorious king. 
And this is the pattern found throughout Christ's earthly ministry, isn't it? In Christ, there is union of power and weakness, riches and poverty, God and man. But also notice, on the other hand, usually pilgrims would make the last part of their pilgrimage to Jerusalem on foot. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been on foot. But now he sends for a colt to ride on. Uh, This was another way of Jesus publicly announcing his arrival as King and Messiah. He purposely set himself apart from everyone else. So even more than a display of humility... He sent for the cult in order to fulfill prophecy. It was an identity marker, in other words. It was to say to those around him, Hey, I am the one you have been waiting for. As we read in Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Jesus riding on a colt is the reverse of what is expected and it is a sign of judgment for the nations. All the show of might and strength is conquered in this demonstration of lowliness. It says he cuts off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. See, the horse was a symbol of strength and might and this worldly political rule. Think of all the strength and power of Rome, how much they gloried in their victories, and notice how they are no more. They are no more. And that goes for every other nation on the planet. While this one, who was riding in on a donkey, established his kingdom That will last forever. Notice the irony. Notice the irony. And because of the blood of the covenant that he will shed in the place that he is riding to, he sets his prisoners free. Now the danger is that this procession may be misunderstood. The danger is always getting the wrong idea of who the Messiah is and what he has come to do. So secondly, we see in this crowd a misguided praise. Misguided praise. Uh, Now this passage is known as the triumphal entry. Uh, Many of you have probably wondered, well, why is that? Well, first it begins with identifying Jesus as the anointed king. Imagine the scene. It says, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, which functioned as a saddle that he was to ride on and he sat on it and he was surrounded by pilgrims who were making their journey to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem 
and in the villages, imagine the scene, not one of them would have remained in their homes, but all would have gone out to see this coming of the king. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now the spreading of cloaks on the road was a sign of submission to the new king, going back to when Jehu was anointed king of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 9. And the reason why many call this day of this occasion Palm Sunday is because they also spread leafy branches which symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. Specifically the victory that God gave them when he freed them from Egyptian slavery. Uh, Palm branches were used to celebrate this victory during the Feast of Booths. But by the time you get to the period between the Old and the New Testaments, the spreading of palm branches was incorporated with military victory. So by their time, the view of the Messiah and what He will come to do may have been a bit skewed. Yet, this remains true. They acknowledge Him as King by laying their cloaks down, and they acknowledge Him as victorious or triumphant by spreading leafy branches on the road. Though He hasn't completed His work, He has been showing His followers how He is and will be victorious. He has forgiven sin, He has healed the lame, deaf, mute, and restored the blind like Bartimaeus. He fed thousands. He displayed his control over creation by calming the seas more than once. He was defeating their true enemies, not so much Rome, but the demons when he exercised them. He was revealing to them that he is the God who led them out of Egypt. He was revealing that He was the God-man, the Messiah that they have been waiting for. And by riding in on a donkey, He is confirming some of their expectations and declaring that the battle has been and will be won and there will be a time of peace for Israel. Now the problem is, as it always is, many of them were excited but confused. Now with that in mind, secondly, listen to their praise as he makes his way to Jerusalem. It echoes the plea of Bartimaeus for Jesus, the son of David, who restored his sight. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now this is a direct quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a joyful song of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. It is part of what is called the Egyptian Hallel, which is from Psalm 113 to 118. It is called that because it is sung during Passover, which celebrates Israel's deliverance from Egypt. It begins with Hosanna or Hoshiana. In your ESV, it translates it for us in Psalm 118, verse 25, where it says what Hosanna means. It means, save us, we pray. So they acknowledge 
that he is the victorious king who will sit on David's throne and establish his kingdom. But they also acknowledge that they need a savior. They need a savior. They call upon God to save them and they recognize that their savior may have come. But the question is, to save them from what? To save them from what? And this is where the confusion lies. Because Psalm 118 was also a procession song that was sung by a crowd led by the king who was victorious over his enemies as they made their way to the temple. So much like the laying of palm branches, this psalm developed into a song sung when they won in military victory. It was sung in anticipation of the final war, the final judgment, their salvation at the hands of the Messiah from their enemies as he would restore Israel and rebuild the temple. Now this is what the disciples would ask Jesus after he was raised. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So what they had in mind was that Jesus was coming to save them specifically from Rome. They thought that he would enter the temple and after worshiping God, that he would lead a full-on attack against Israel's enemies as the son of David. But they were misguided and completely wrong. Isn't this human tendency? The human tendency to make all aspects of religion to be mainly something that would fix our worldly concerns. This is what is behind the health and wealth gospel, for instance, and the belief that Christendom is the only way to govern the world. But they had it completely wrong. He just spent his entire ministry revealing to them who their true enemies were. And it began with themselves. They were their own worst enemies. That would apply to all of us as well. His primary mission in our lives is not so much to defeat our worldly enemies. He came to defeat and conquer the enemy within. He came to defeat theirs and our sin. He came to defeat death. And Satan, he was defeating sin by granting forgiveness. He was restoring and healing people who suffered from the effects of sin, even raising the dead. He was defeating the powers of darkness by exercising demons and granting liberty to the captives. So in a way, it was his triumphal entry. But he was not going to do what they expected him to do. Notice his destination. He enters Jerusalem. And there are no signs in the text that the crowd was still with him. He enters Jerusalem alone. In fact, he enters Jerusalem to confront another crowd. A more confused, lost, and extreme crowd. A radicalized crowd. A crowd that has been stirred up by the chief priests against Jesus. I bet if he came in with all the power and might that he possesses and conquered Rome, they would have accepted his authority. But once they noticed the weakness, 
and the lowliness of the suffering servant and how he was not here to liberate them from Rome. Once they saw that he was arrested and condemned standing beside Pilate, after he confessed that he is the true and living God, after he, he proclaimed that he is the son of the living God, what did Pilate ask the crowd? Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? How did they respond? And they cried out, crucify him. No hosannas in the highest? Crucify him. This would only happen five days later. Once they couldn't use the Messiah for their agenda, they turn on him and use their own enemy against him. That's politics for you. Now notice how this text does mention where he will confront the people of Jerusalem first. Because his destination was not just Jerusalem. It was the temple. The temple was his destination in this triumphal entry. So thirdly, just as in Psalm 118, this procession ended at the temple. His destination was to end up at his father's house. Just as when he was 12 years old, when his parents lost him among their group, and he was found there in the temple, sitting among the teachers, asking questions and giving them some remarkable answers as well. And when his parents confronted him, he responded, Did you know that I must be in my father's house? But also, something interesting to note is if you follow the storyline of Israel's history, this arrival at the temple would also bring you back to Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11. Before Israel went into exile because of their sin, Ezekiel records the departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple. God was telling His people that He cannot be limited by a building structure and that He could remove His merciful presence from the temple at any time. And since then, His people have been waiting for His return. Notice what it says in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood, it's, it's using human characteristics here, stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. That is the Mount of Olives. Notice the reversal. The glory of the Lord has returned from the same direction in which He left. This was to fulfill the prophecy of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, what was he doing in the temple? It says he went in there and looked around. What was he looking for? He was looking to see if they were indeed fulfilling what the temple was there for. In other words, he went there for judgment. Why? Well, because it is his father's house. And he has every right to. And he is in himself, that is his flesh. He is the temple of the living God. And he dwelt or tabernacled among us. He has the rights to. He is the Lord of the temple. In fact, his mission was all about the temple. 
It was all about the glory and worship of God. He wasn't going to do what they wanted him to do, worldly speaking. Actually, he would later say that he would destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He would replace and fulfill what the temple stood for, speaking of his own body. But not yet. At this point, he was tired. He will deal with the people the next day, as it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve, where they were most likely staying with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Now the fact that he went directly to the temple alone just proves that he is not only the king of Israel, but also that his mission was much more than worldly. But it was religious. It was spiritual. He had a concern over his people's spiritual state. He had a concern over his father's house. And the problem that was found in all of the crowds that followed him was that they thought of their salvation only in worldly ways. They wanted to be saved from the effects of sin, such as disease. They wanted to be saved from their political enemies. But when it came to confronting them of their sin and how they needed to be ultimately saved from that, they didn't want to hear it. Most did not understand the gospel. They did not understand who the Messiah was and what He had come to do. And the same goes for many in churches today. Many churches have a different gospel that preaches a different Jesus. Many read the Bible selectively, picking and choosing what they want to hear from the Bible. Much of our problems come from a selective reading of the Bible and a lack of understanding of what the Bible actually teaches about Jesus. There are many people who sing praises to Jesus so passionately, singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but all for the wrong reasons. You can be passionate about some interpretation of the Bible and still get it completely wrong. You can preach and teach with such passion and still be wrong in the usage of the Bible. Because we may be using the Bible to say what we want it to say. Many use the Bible strictly as a science book, a history book, an economics book, or a political science book rather than God's word, which is the means that he uses to expose us to a God who is holy, to a God who hates sin, which exposes us to our own sinfulness and our need of a savior and which drives us to Christ for salvation. Because Jesus went into Jerusalem not to defeat Rome, but to die on a cross for our sins. Yes, he rode in as a king, but he also rode in as our humble savior. And this was just a long procession to the cross. Now, have we been misguided to think that Jesus is just here to cater to what we want him to do for us? 
Now do we call on Him when we are suffering from disease, persecution, or going through trials asking for relief? Do we call on Him with loud hosannas? Of course we do. We have nowhere else to turn. But do we believe that He is indeed our Savior and our King who has our best interests in mind? Unfortunately today, many will turn to Jesus only for what they want and curse Him if they don't get it. And the thing is, one day, Jesus will return as King, not riding on a donkey. And He will wipe out all of His and all of our enemies. And he will gather to himself people from every nation, as the prophecy in Zechariah says he will, speak peace to the nations and save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He will return as king and savior of his people. And he will do the unimaginable and bring us into a kingdom that we have never seen or experienced. The greatest kingdom of all. So this is a warning for us that we do not misinterpret Jesus and the misuse of the Bible and the gospel for our own agendas and forget what the gospel is all about. It is about God becoming man to die and rise for sinners. This is where the triumphal entry leads to. And this is what Jesus was focused on. We must get this right. Because the salvation of souls is at stake. If we make the church about anything else but this glorious gospel, souls will slip through the crack. We can't get distracted as a church with the cares of the world, whether it is socio-political or financial. Though these are all important matters, and need to be discussed and dealt with out in the world. But they are not ultimate. I say this, and many will consider it borderline blasphemous. But the United States of America is not the kingdom of God. It's not. It's not. It will, too, be gone one day. Now, I love my country... And we are called to be a blessing wherever we live by obeying His commands. We pray for our nation and her leaders. But there is no nation on this planet that is ultimate. Let us not forget, Christians, that we are pilgrims and strangers in a hostile world, including right here in our own nation. And the ultimate thing is, whether or not you have received this King truly as your Savior, that is the ultimate thing. And so sing praises to the glory of God, because He will return with His kingdom to take His people home one day. Let us pray.